as in the episode focusing on guerrilla warfare, where people credited the art of war with its origin. Leonardo da Vinci is credited by some with inventing a proto-tank. Designed by Leonardo to, quote, enter the closed ranks of the enemy with their artillery, close quotes, da Vinci's armoured vehicle represented a conical cover inspired by a turtle shell, with guns and turrets coming off it to fire at the enemy. This design, like most of Leonardo's science and engineering, was, if you're being kind, too far ahead of its time to be a serious part of the history of the tank. If you're being ungenerous, you'd say it's the drawings of a lunatic. I mean, if in 500 years time, somebody invents a spaceship in the shape of a dining plate that can travel faster than light, I very much doubt they'll credit George Lucas with inventing the spaceship. Anyway, the people who actually developed the tank was the French and the British, and it was developed concurrently. But, like many ideas and inventions, the credit always goes to the one who releases it first. In 1903, a French artillery captain named Léon Lev-Avasseur proposed a Lev-Avasseur project, a self-propelled cannon moved by a caterpillar system and fully armoured for protection. Powered by an 8-horsepower petrol engine, quote, the Lev-Avasseur machine would have had a crew of three, storage for ammunition and cross-country ability. But the viability of the project was disputed by the Artillery Technical Committee and the project was formally abandoned in 1908. The first real step was Benjamin Holt of the Holt Manufacturing Company of Stockton, California. Holt was the first to file a US patent for a workable trawler type tractor in 1907. With the centre of innovation for this type of manufacturing being in England, Holt travelled there in 1903 to learn more about ongoing developments, though every test he saw failed. Holt paid Alvin Lombard 60,000 US dollars, about 1.6 million dollars today, for the right to produce vehicles under Lombard's painting for the Lombard Steam Log Hauler. Holt returned to Stockton and, utilising his knowledge and his company's metallurgy capabilities, he became the first to design and manufacture practical continuous tracks for use on tractors. Holt replaced the wheels on a 40 horsepower Holt steamer with a set of wooden tracks bolted to the chains. On November the 24th, 1904, he successfully tested the updated machine ploughing the soggy delta lands of Roberts Island. But what about the Holt tractors are so important? Well, when the First World War broke out in 1914, some privately owned Holt tractors were used by the French army to pull heavy artillery pieces in difficult terrain. Though the French had not purchased halts in large numbers, but the sight of them being used later by the British 
inspired French Colonel Jean-Baptiste Estaigne to have plans drawn up for an armoured body on Caterpillar tracks. In July 1914, Lieutenant Colonel Ernest Swinton, a British Royal Engineer officer, learned about the Holt tractors and their transportation capabilities in rough terrain from a friend who had seen one in Antwerp, and he passed the information on to the transport department. When the First World War broke out, Swinton was sent to France as the Army's war correspondent, and in October 1914, identified the need for what he described as a quote-unquote machine-gun destroyer, a cross-country armoured vehicle. He remembered the whole tractor, and thought it could be the basis for an armoured vehicle. Swinton proposed to the Secretary of the British Committee of Imperial Defence that the committee build a power-driven, bulletproof, tracked vehicle that could destroy enemy guns. The War Office, lukewarm to the idea, agreed to trials on the 17th of February 1915, but the Caterpillar bogged down in the mud and then the project was abandoned. When Winston Churchill, first Lord of the Admiralty, learned of the armoured tractor idea, he reignited investigation into the idea of using the Holt tractor. The Royal Navy and the Landships Committee at last agreed to sponsor experiments and tests of armoured tractors as a type of land ship. In March, Churchill ordered the building of 18 experimental landships, 12 using the Caterpillar wheels and 6 using large wheels. Construction, however, failed to move forward, as the wheels seemed impractical after a wooden mock-up was realised. The wheels were initially planned to be 40 feet in diameter, but turned out to be too big and too fragile at just 15 feet. The Caterpillar also met with industrial problems, and the system was deemed too large, too complicated, and too underpowered. Meanwhile in France, 1915, the French arms manufacturer Snyder & Co. sent out its chief designer, Eugène Briel, to investigate the tractors from the Holt Company on trial in Britain. On his return, Briel who had earlier been involved in designing armoured cars for Spain, convinced his company's management to initiate studies on the development of an armoured and armed tractor based on the Holt chassis. Two were later ordered. The French experiments on the Holt Caterpillar tracks started in May 1915 at the Schneider plant with the 75-wheel directed model and a 45 horsepower integral Caterpillar Holt. The Caterpillar type proved itself superior. On the 16th of June, a test was watched by the President of the Republic, and on the 9th of December, the first complete chassis with armour was demonstrated to the French army. Back to Britain, and instead of using the Holt tractor, the British government chose to involve a British agricultural machinery firm, Foster & Sons, whose managing director and designer was Sir William Tritton. Development continued, 
with new re-engineered tracks designed by Triton. And the machine he built was christened Little Willie, later to be called the Mark I. Completed in December 1915 and tested on the 3rd of December 1915, the trials went well, though trench crossing ability was deemed insufficient, and so a few more modifications were placed onto the landship. And after completion on the 29th of January 1916, successful trials were made. The War Office placed an order for 100 units to be used on the Western Front in France, and a second order for 50 additional units was placed in April 1916. It would take until 1917 for the French tanks to start being delivered. The name tank was originally used as a security measure. The land ships were described in official documents as water carriers to hide the name of what they were developing, and workers referred to them as water tanks, or simply tanks. The Land Ships Committee decided, for security purposes, to change its own name to something less descriptive, and so Ernest Swinton suggested the name everyone was using, Tank, and the committee agreed. From then on, the name Tank was used in official documents and general talk about the new technology, and the Landships Committee was renamed the Tank Supply Committee. The naval background of the tank's development, with the Admiralty and Royal Navy being heavily involved in its development, explains why nautical tank terms such as hatch, hull, bab and port are in use. During the Battle of fleurs Corselette, part of the Somme campaign, the first use of tanks in warfare began on the 15th of September 1916. During the battle, many broke down, but nearly a third were successful in breaking through. Of the 49 tanks shipped to the Somme, only 32 were able to begin the first attack, and only 9 made it across no man's land. The tanks had been rushed into combat before the design was mature enough, against Churchill and Swinton's wishes, and the number used was small but their use did give important feedback on how to design newer tanks, the soundness of the concept and their potential to affect the course of war. However, the French were highly critical of the British employment of only a small number of tanks at this battle. They felt the British had sacrificed the secrecy of the weapon while employing it in numbers too small to be decisive. Something I think this time the French are justified in feeling. I would just like to dwell for a moment on what it must have been like for a German soldier to have no knowledge of the tank. This, remember, at a time when the car was still a rarity, and then to see a tank coming across the trench towards you. A German soldier writes, quote, My blood froze in my veins crawling along the created battlefield were two mysterious monsters. The monsters approached slowly, limping, staggering, swaying, but no obstacle could stop them. They moved ever forward 
with a supernatural force. Our machine gun fire and hand grenades simply bounced off them. They were thus able to easily destroy our crews in the forward shell holes, then run straight through the German front line and off into the village of Fleurs, where they stayed for some time. The British infantry, which had followed them, took possession of the village, and the machines drove off down the ligny Toloi road. The Mark I was capable of performing on the First World War battlefield, one of the most difficult battlefield terrains ever, but they did have reliability problems. When they were working, they could cross trenches or craters of nine feet and drive right through barbed wire. However, it was still common for them to get stuck and break down. Most World War I tanks could travel only at about walking pace at best. Their steel armour could stop small arms fire and fragments from high explosive artillery shells. However, they were vulnerable to a direct hit from artillery and mortar shells. The environment inside was extremely unpleasant, as ventilation was inadequate. The atmosphere was heavy with poisonous carbon monoxide from the engine and firing the weapons, fuel and oil vapours from the engines and cordite fumes from the weapon. Temperatures inside could reach 50 degrees Celsius. Entire crews lost consciousness inside the tanks or collapsed when again exposed to fresh air. It should be noted also that the French were far more effective users of tanks in the First World War, even if the British got there earlier. British tanks were focused on heavy industrial layouts, but the French, using their car manufacturing capabilities, were able to mass-produce tanks, designing the first practical light tank in 1916. The Renault FT had proper climbing tracks and a top-mounted turret with 360-degree capability. The FT may have been the first modern tank which most other tank designers and layouts would follow. The FT had a production run of 3,700, more than all the British tanks produced during the war combined, and the French even managed to find the time to make the huge Char 2C tank, the heaviest tank in the world. The introduction of the tank meant that the tank instantly became a crucial part of battlefield tactics almost as soon after they were introduced. It was exacerbated by German recalcitrants in developing their own tank. General Ludendorff of the German High Command even said that the tank was a principal factor in Germany's defeat, as British and French tanks were able to halt the spring offensive in its tracks and launch their own counterattack, the 100 Days Offensive. Germany only fielded 90 tanks during 1918, with 75 of these captured from the Allies. Despite the success of the tank during the First World War, the future of tanks looked bleak following the war. Most of the countries involved were facing severe economic troubles by the end, especially the British and the French.
By the end of the war, Britain had 25 tank battalions. A year later, only five. The future of the tank was not assured in Britain until 1922, when the government decided there would need to be a tank corps. However, the Americans decided to abolish their tank regiments altogether, giving tanks to the charge of the infantry. France did retain some remnants of a tank corps, but only a support for their army and a re-emerged cavalry, which had already been proven to be obsolete. The only major real use of tanks in the interwar years in the West was by a small group of tanks sent to Russia to help in the struggle against the Bolsheviks. This intervention single-handedly proved the effectiveness of the modern tank. When a single British tank captured the entire city of Tsaritsyn, it captured 40,000 Bolshevik prisoners. Ironic, as this was later to be the site of the bloodiest battle in human history, when it was renamed Stalingrad. Despite a slowdown in tank production, the 1920s proved a purple patch for military theorists and planners, with this new mechanised warfare opening up a whole new range of warfare and tactics to go along with it. J. F. C. Fuller and B. H. Littlehart published a whole series of books in Britain on the theory and practice of armoured warfare. These books were mostly ignored by readers in Britain and America, but in Germany they were avid readers. Much of the innovative weapons and tactics used by the Germans for the first time in World War II were actually ideas created by theorists like Fuller and Little Hart during the period. As the rest of the world were not interested in tanks, the development of tanks mostly just followed in line with the development of automobiles. Germany, however, began learning from their defeats, reading modern theories, and in 1926 they started to build their own tanks. The Russians entered the tank scene in 1929 with a five-year plan to build as many tanks as possible. These tanks were very poorly executed and they produced very low quality tanks. It did not help that Stalin had undertaken his great purge and executed many army officers and engineers, the very type of people who had been reading Fuller and Little Hart. Hitler came to power and in 1934 he dropped any pretense of adhering to the Treaty of Versailles and ordered his factories to up production and to start building tanks. Hitler set up the Panzerwaffe's first three divisions in 1935, and when the Spanish Civil War started, Franco asked Hitler to help him defeat the Spanish generals who fought against him. Hitler used this opportunity to train the Panzerwaffe and the Luftwaffe. It was during the Spanish Civil War the Luftwaffe invented and perfected the Blitzkrieg or Lightning War. This was most famously used in Guernica, where German bombers killed hundreds of people, allowing Franco's ground troops to storm in and take the city. The town and the bombing is the subject of a famous painting by Pablo Picasso, 
simply named Guernica. A Nazi general by the name of Heinz Guernican, who had done much to invent the tactics and training involved in the Spanish Civil War, envisioned an army of mixed forces, not simply all tanks as Fuller theorised, but also incorporating soldiers, air forces and various armoured fighting vehicles. The Germans' new panzer force was their primary attacking force against the enemy in the upcoming war Hitler was planning. The Second World War, in the European theatre at least, could be referred to as the Tank and Aviation War, or the Tank and Aviation Theatre. Such was their reliance on mechanised warfare. During the invasion of Poland, tanks performed the traditional role of being in close cooperation to that of the infantry unit. But it was the Battle of France where deep penetrations by armoured vehicles in a technique called Blitzkrieg were first used. The combined arms and radios in the tanks, unlike in France where 80% of tanks did not have radios, meant that the Germans had a level of tactical flexibility and power that surpassed that of the Allies. Additionally, the long tradition passed down from Prussian generals meant that the German generals could think on their feet and innovate in battle, while the French relied on tried and tested chain of command warfare, leading to the Germans simply overrunning the French army. This was despite the French tanks being of equal or even superior quality to that of the German tanks in both quality and quantity. When the Germans launched its invasion of the Soviet Union, they found the Soviets had managed to design a superior tank, the T-34. But a lack of preparations for the Axis attack and mechanical problems, poor training of the crews and incompetent leadership caused the Soviet machines to be surrounded and destroyed in large numbers. Despite early successes against the Soviets, once the Soviets had gained more experience and put into place a coherent strategy, they forced the Germans to upgun their Panzer IVs and to design and build both the larger and more expensive Tiger Heavy tank in 1942 and the Panther Medium tank the following year. In doing so, the Wehrmacht was denied the infantry and other support arms as production priorities moved away from infantry and towards tanks. Violating the principle of combined arms they'd previously pioneered. Soviet developments following the invasion included the upgunning of the T-34, development of self-propelled anti-tank guns such as the SU-152 and the development of the IS-2 in the closing stages of the war. The T-34 would be the most produced tank of the Second World War, adding up to 65,000 by May 1945. Much like the Soviets, when entering the Second World War in December 1941, the United States' huge production capacity enabled it to rapidly construct thousands of relatively cheap M4 Sherman tanks. An all-round compromise, the Shermans were reliable 
and formed a large part of the Anglo-American ground forces. But in a tank-versus-tank battle, it was no match for the panther or the tiger. So, if you've ever seen the 2014 film Fury, you'll know that it's probably quite unlikely for something like that to happen. Though I guess it is a film, so we'll let it off. Numerical and logistical superiority and the successful use of combined arms allowed the Allies to overrun the German forces during the Battle of Normandy. Upgunned versions with the 76mm gun M1 and the 17-pounder were introduced to improve the M4's firepower, but concerns about production remained. A total of some 42,000 Shermans were built and delivered to the Allied nations during the war years, second only to the T-34. It leads to one of my favourite, almost certainly apocryphal quotes that would almost certainly have never happened. It occurred when discussing the relative qualities of the tanks. The German commander told the American commander that a German tank was worth four of his tanks. And the American commander agreed, saying, Ah yes, but we always have five tanks. In the modern era, tanks are still vitally important. Yet their nature is changing. Tank versus tank combat is diminishing with the decline of symmetrical warfare and the rise of unconventional warfare, like, as previously discussed, guerrilla warfare. Now, tanks work with infantry in urban warfare environments by deploying them ahead of the platoon to scope out enemies and to protect the infantry. When engaging enemy infantry, tanks can provide covering fire on the battlefield. Conversely, tanks can spearhead attacks when infantry deployed in personnel carriers. In terms of future developments, future trends seem to be going in a few directions. Increased detection, such as thermal imaging, automated firing for the guns, and increased muzzle energy from the gun to improve range, accuracy, and armour penetration. Tanks in future may have stealth technologies by adapting technologies designed for aircraft. In addition, improvements to camouflage and attempts to render it invisible through active camouflage that can change according to where the tank is located is also being pursued. While the use of hybrid tanks and other forms of energy may provide increased reliability and mobility compared to that of the traditional combustion engine. And it of course will lessen its environmental impact. Though if you're going around bombing half the Middle East, I doubt you're thinking too much about helping polar bears. We can all see that the tank was vital to winning the Second World War, especially in the European theatre. But it was not only the added firepower that changed warfare, it was the way wars were now fought. Tanks prevented the Second World War simply being a rerun of trench warfare. Imagine, if you can, it was like if the ancient Greek battles were fought only with pikemen, line after line of pikemen attacking each other. The battleground was static, and there would have been a huge amount of casualties due to the attritional nature of the battle. But then add in an army who were on horseback, able to travel faster, with more and more firepower. 
This is like adding the tanks of the Second World War onto the First World War. We do get a far different war. The tank revolutionised warfare, completely changing it into a mechanised state. The tank was the type of invention that was clear and evident from the first day it appeared on the battlefield of the Western Front. It would mark a sea change in how the Second World War was fought, a mere 20 years later to the first. Wars changed over time, and it is usually the first to see the change that is the one to profit. Napoleon's revolutions in the use of space and attacking armies rather than holding territory, and his use of artillery were the main reasons for his formidable successes in the Napoleonic Wars. 10 to 15 years later, and everybody had caught up with him, and he was no longer quite the dynamo he once was. The tank was the Allies' initial advantage, but Germany soon caught up and surpassed the Allies. Germany's advantage, however, only lasted a couple of years, as then the Allies caught up again. The revolution was far more than just artillery. Artillery was a mere addendum to infantry forces. The tank changed everything. Mechanised warfare became mobile warfare, and tanks became the main method of fighting wars. In the episode of Guerrilla Warfare, we talked about how difficult it was to defend against that type of insurgency. But the tank is one of the few methods that can project force on land. During the US-led invasion of Iraq, the M1 Abrams was found to have a high level of vulnerability to road 